Welcome to the Pemberley Podcast, a podcast where we discuss Jane Austen adaptations, now covering Recipe for Persuasion by Sonali Dev. I'm Yolanda Rodriguez. And I'm Jillian Davis. We are proud partners of the Frolic Podcast Network, a community made up of your favorite voices in all of Romancelandia and beyond. Keep up with us on Twitter and Instagram at the Pemberley, and you can email us at thepemberleypodcast at gmail.com. Hi everyone, welcome to a special episode of the Pemberley Podcast, in which we interview author Sonali Dev all about her book Recipe for Persuasion. Sonali has won the American Library Association's Award for Best Romance, the RT Reviewer Choice Award for Best Contemporary Romance, multiple RT Seals of Excellence, is a Rita finalist, and has been listed for the Dublin Literary Award. We started discussing her book back in June, so it's wonderful to hear her speak about her personal journey with Jane Austen, how this and all her Austen retellings have come to be, and even the books to come, including a Sense and Sensibility retelling called Incense and Sensibility that's set to release July 2021. Stay tuned to the very end to even hear a bit about the Emma retelling to follow. You can find more information on all of Sonali's books and where to follow her on social media at her website, sonalidev.com. Now, on to the interview. Everyone, please welcome Sonali Dev! Yay! (laughs) Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. A visit to Pemberley. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) We like to think so. We're, We're also really big, big Jane Austen enthusiasts, so... We'd like to dive into your connection with Jane Austen. You've mentioned in some other interviews that your introduction was through Trishna, an Indian TV adaptation of Pride and Prejudice. What drew you to this story initially? This was, I think, sixth or seventh grade. So I was in middle school uh, growing up in uh, in India, in Mumbai, Bombay then. This uh, adaptation was a pretty true adaptation, but it was set in an Indian family. I have to mention that along before Darcy Mania took over the West and long before uh, Colin Firth stepped out of that pond in his see-through white shirt. There was an Indian male model who was also a prince in real life playing Mr. Darcy. So there was uh, quite a hullabaloo back then when this show came on. It was also a time when we had a few hours of programming every day. So it wasn't this, you know... 7,000 channels with 24-7 programming. Television was a whole different beast. Here was the show that everyone was taken up with. But what I remember most, and and, um, the Lizzie Bennet character was um, named Rekha in this. um, and, And what I remember is this woman who was really contrary, who had opinions about everything, who never paid any heed to, uh, you know, to suggestions that she tame her opinions. And so she was opinionated. She was contrary. She made no effort to be uh, likable to the opposite sex. And she was loved for all those reasons. And this was kind of mind bending for me based on everything I was seeing around myself, right? My world was filled with stories. So there was Bollywood, Hollywood, a lot of English and American literature. In all of that, what I was seeing was women expecting to be something else, expecting to be sacrificial, likable, and to pander constantly, right? To keep their opinions to themselves. All of that 
was what I was seeing in the stories around me. We have natural things that we're born with, I think. And something inside me, this just spoke to, right? Who I believed I was just naturally was reflected in this. And so I ran out and I checked Pride and Prejudice out of the library. And it was completely life altering, right? To see heroines who had this level of self-worth in a time when nothing in their world told them that they could have self-worth was completely, you know, for young me, life altering. And I didn't even know it then, but it felt okay to be me because of this one book. That's amazing. I love that. So do you have a favorite Jane Austen novel? Uh, No, I do not. (laughs) I have four favorite Jane Austen novels and I am trying to write, um, you know, write homages to all four under this one story universe. That's the whole point of this. And this is a dream I've had forever. A dream I wasn't quite sure, you know, would ever become reality. I mean, if you really pushed me, I would say Pride and Prejudice. You know, simply because of all of them, they it feels like the most complete story to me. It feels like the most relevant to me story to me. And always I feel like with any author you love, the first of their books that you read has a way of just being special because it was your moment of falling in love. But I always like to also joke that when people ask me what is the literary character that you most relate to, I always say Emma because she thinks she knows what's best for everyone better than they do. And I totally relate to that. (laughs) And she favors intention, you know, over intention over the action, right? So I do relate to Emma the most, I think, or did when I was younger. Of course, I'm being a little facetious with that. So what are your four favorite Austin novels? Pride and Prejudice, I think, again, as I said, it's a very complete love story. For me, love stories are really about coming into your own as an individual enough to let love into your life rather than a story of two people. So I feel like all great love stories are really about individuals growing enough and coming into their own and learning to love themselves enough that when the universe gives you something, you're, you know, you're ready for it. In terms of individual growth, you know, both love interests, I feel like it's a very complete love story. Also, all the best love stories are very rooted in a community and in the world around them, right? I feel like that. that's why it's the most, you know, for me, the one of the most fleshed out uh, love stories. I think uh, persuasion, because it is the most highly romantic when it comes to a connection between two people, connection that transcends uh, mistakes, you know, which is the one I think lesson we all need to learn if we want long term relationships is because there is no relationship that doesn't go through intense pain that is bad enough for you to justify walking away. And yet a relationship that transcends mistakes in that way, it's incredibly uh, romantic. And um, Emma, because it's um, the most crazy pants and kind of fun. And uh, again, a character who's unapologetically, um, you know, herself and and a character who really has very few roadblocks and things standing in her way. So it's, I think, the most fun in that sense. And then sense and sensibility, simply because I think the relationship between two sisters, I also think the themes of sense and sensibility that speak to me translate least well to the contemporary day because I think that that book a lot of it is about cheating and what that means and truth and what that means so my next one is are you ready for this drum roll please (laughs) the next one is incense and sensibility my son came up with it when he was in middle school which is amazing and now he expects royalties (laughs) 
<laughs> so please buy the book. <laughs> he needs his royalties. So um, to me, when I read Sense and Sensibility, Edward was cheating, right? There is this big hullabaloo about how he is so noble because he doesn't cheat, but he actually puts himself in a situation where, you know, they're able to fall in love. You know, I mean, cheating is not about what you say. It's not about saying those words or about touch. So there is a lie told. I know that it has to do with the world that she was in, but to translate that to today, it becomes a book about uh, fidelity. And so I've found a way to subvert that, but I've also more directly, I think I'm talking about truth and how we've found in our modern world to constantly find ways to justify telling lies by working around the truth and dancing around the truth. It's also the story of um, the oldest brother in the Rajay family who's running for California governor. So there's a lot of the politics, you know, as a politician, it takes that whole truth and lies thing to a whole different level. And so the book really is about, you know, whether a promise is what you say or it is what you do, whether a lie is what you do or is a lie just what you say and the same for truth. So those are the four. Yeah. No, that's great. I'm, I mean, like, for many reasons, we're looking forward to incense and sensibility. But it's interesting what you say about it being a story about fidelity, because you're right. And all, and obviously, like, incense and sensibility, like, there's that whole thing with Willoughby, where he's like, going to be with Marianne, but then like, totally like leaves her when he finds out that his fortune is in danger. I feel like so many conversations about sense and sensibility have been about like the personalities of the sisters, how like, one is like keeps her feelings very close to her and one is very open with her feelings. But definitely, I agree with you when it comes to the relationship aspect of it. And we've seen so much of Yash Rajay throughout this whole series that I think we're really, really looking forward to seeing him as a leading man. Yes, I think Yash has been my most reader demanded story. And of course, it was always like I knew going in what these four stories were going to be. I don't know if you can see the parallels, but he was always Edward Ferris, right? It is somebody who carries the mantle of his family's dreams. And it's not as simple as that. I like to think of him as Edward Ferris with today's independence to be who he is. And it is, I mean, Edward's um, story is about him coming into his own and being able to do what he wants. So in terms of plot, I think there's this whole thing with, you know, Lucy Steele making it easy by just, which again, is genius on Jane Austen's part because it's that perfect comedy of class and comedy of the time and what was important and what love meant and so it really fits in very well with the story she tells I kind of tell a slightly different story and I've also always thought you know she wrote these heroines with amazing amounts of self-worth back at a time when the world was not reinforcing that but I feel like characters like Lydia Bennett and even to some extent Marianne that there was this underlying lesson of the more long-suffering sensibility is a bad thing and I know what she's saying but I think in today's world we've as women been allowed to take our sensibility and convert that into passion right and that's a growth that if you don't stand me that process you know I mean if you didn't constantly rein in whatever Lydia's spirit was maybe she would have grown to be a different person I don't know that feels like in today's day and age she would get much more play for that and therefore growth would probably have occurred and I feel like even with Marianne in terms of my story Marianne's uh, and Willoughby's story has more to do with what society allows right I mean so if you make the assumption that Willoughby truly was in love with her and we have reason to believe in the story that he did 
it was just that the world he lived in and the structure of society did not allow him any way to let that happen for himself right and so there just were so many restrictions of what you could and could not do that your choices were between destitution and love and his choices between destitution and love and so there is a little bit of that parallel in the Marianne story in in sense and sensibility although the story is mainly focused on yash and india dashwood who is a yoga instructor the main vein of that story is edward and eleanor Amazing. We're we're very much looking forward to that. So how did you decide that you wanted to write your own Jane Austen retelling? You know, this happened over a long period of time. So weirdly enough, my first introduction to Jane Austen was through a retelling. As I grew up and I've read these stories innumerable number of times. And so there's always versions of my own were running in my head for a very long time. Of course, like anyone else and any young person who likes to write, it was usually playing with that story in a different culture and a different time, which is how a lot of the retellings are. As I started writing more, as I wrote my first few novels, I kind of knew that, that there was really no place in that for me as a writer. And I also became more and more aware of how her stories had changed me as a person not just as a writer, a lot of who I had become and who I am today has to do with the stories of my childhood and the women I saw and the characters I saw in books and in the world. And that kind of has allowed me to be who I am. And I like who I am. And so there is this homage, I think, to be paid to the heroines of my childhood. And I think Jane Austen and her stories were that. And so I started to realize that this was really going to have to be very much my stories, but about what I learned from these stories. So this is not even really an homage to these stories. It is an homage to what I learned from these stories. And so so that all kind of, you know, organically continued to fall in place in my head. And then this family, you know, the Rajay family, which I wanted to examine privilege in in the immigrant Indian community, you know, what that looks like, because the story that we get to see, at least when I was growing up and for, for many, many years is brown pain and immigrant angst. And that's not all there is to the culture, right? There is also a fair amount of privilege in that culture. And I think a lot of Jane Austen stories are about uh, the privileged and the unprivileged or, you know, the, the divisions in society. And I think very obvious and true in our world today. So that was kind of where I wanted to couch this. And that's where I wanted to put the focus of my stories. And there's an organic magic to, you know, when something mulls in your head for, you know, for decades, there's just like something that all is coming together that's organic and you can't exactly define it. But these are the ways that I think it kind of came about. Wow. No, I love that. It makes a lot of sense. Let's get into Recipe for Persuasion specifically. What made you think that Ashna and Rico had the perfect storyline for filling the shoes of persuasion? (laughs) It's often been to me about, you know, what I learned from these stories. And I think one of the things uh, with persuasion specifically was um, the world that I grew up in and culturally the world that I grew up in, you know, was this very, you got one chance at things. So mistakes were pretty absolute. 
So as you were growing up, the things that we were taught was that you got one shot, you know, you got one shot to get into the best college. Uh, If you, you know, messed up and got involved with the wrong sort of guy, then, uh, you know, your shot at making a good marriage was gone. And, you know, I mean, a lot of this, our culture has evolved out of, but as I was growing up, this was kind of the way that that we were all controlled, (laughs) you know, to follow in with our fairly patriarchal society. So for me, a book like Persuasion really was said to me that you can make mistakes and you'll have a second chance. So to me, Persuasion really is about growing enough to have a second shot at things. They they both make mistakes. You know, in the end, they don't lose because of those mistakes because they grow, Mm -hmm. right? And so to me, that's what that book was about. And growing up, a lot of Bollywood films and a lot of stories around us were about women wanting an X thing, like what happens to Anne, is that she desires X-Man, but her family does not believe that Captain Wentworth is worthy of her. And they believe that a different life is more to her benefit. And this was a story that was really constant around me. And the way that story often got couched in Bollywood films and Indian stories I heard, and real life stories I heard around me, was that women uh, were forced into a different marriage than the one they desired. And if they took that on with their, you know, if they said, well, this is what I've gotten, this is the lemons that I'm going to make lemonade with. So if you put your head down and decided to make the best of it, then happiness awaited you. So in all of these stories, you actually, you know, when you gave up on your own desires, you found happiness. And somehow magically, this person that you ended up with was really the one for you. It was a terrible, terrible thing to tell, you know, young girls, but it was told to us constantly right and is it true yes like if you're forced into something but it's true in this very ugly way and I it really always bothered me so even uh, and there are iconic films that I love which and they're mentioned I one of them is actually mentioned in the book you know that moment when Shobhi feels that thing based on this film Kabhi Kabhi was something I felt I'm like that is like he has no right to touch her like what is going on here why are you telling me this is okay and beautiful right it used to really bother me and so of course I had to address that because that was also very connected to the Anne Elliot and Wentworth story in my head so I wanted to do this in this two generational way and I also wanted to examine what happens with a woman if she says no I will not put my head down and accept this and we're told constantly that when you put yourself and your desires before those of your family and your children, then there will be destruction. And of course, there's destruction, right? Because that's the way this world is set up. And I wanted to write a woman who says, fine, you know, I will deal with that destruction and comes like walks through that carnage and comes out on the other side happy. And so to me, this really was so much of this was about that was about Shobhi and being able to make that choice and find happiness at the end. And how we as women often don't see how much our mothers and grandmothers have actually set up for us. And we constantly judge them from a place of privilege that they provided for us. So to me, this was 
you know, these two journeys juxtaposed on each other was really what this was about, even more than really it being only about Rico and Ashna, because of course, Rico and Ashna are magic, right? That's the whole point. Omar and Shobhi are magic. The point is that we find this stuff that is magical, but it's made so hard for us to be true to that and to have that. And so naturally, the, the story is about growing yourself to be a person who can fight for that and claim that. To your original question, Rico and Ashna, from the second they meet, they're just right. And there is, I mean, we've all had that experience in our lives with friends, with people from, you know, with, with romantic relationships, is that there are just people who are, it's magic when you meet, right, for whatever reason. And it is, your connection is magic. And so that is between them. There were very specific reasons why he's a soccer player and why she is a chef. And those were story reasons because the things I wanted to tell really fit well with that. Like it was, I mean, Captain Wentworth, he's a military man and he's able to make his, in that time, that was the way that somebody who's not born into nobility could ascend the class divisions. Also, a personality of somebody who is a naval officer is different from the personality of someone who's a lawyer, right? So I needed that essential warrior personality, which in our day and age, I think athletes is, you know, are a very good example of that because he can love like that because of his ability to focus like that on one thing and one person right and so it was just organically that's why he is who he is but to me the story really is about being able to you know say no and live life on your terms and find a way to be happy which is so much growth it's being able to take all the stuff you're told is going to happen and flip it and for that your own strength has to grow yeah definitely something that struck us as we were reading this is like i feel like most people read jane austen and they're like it's a very happy light and sort of like the only, like the worst thing that can happen to you is like some guy kind of breaks your heart like that's sort of like the highest stakes in these novels. And you definitely took it to a much darker place, a very real, like much darker place where you deal with themes like alcoholism and rape and suicide. Like none of these things are really discussed in Jane Austen. So I feel like you already touched on like, you know, what made you want to go into this because like that's part of like the lessons that you took from it, just sort of like reading these throughout your life. Yes, absolutely. And um, and in all honesty, it's also as a reader what you process, right? So when for me, you know, I don't feel like I know Jane Austen has famously even said this where about Pride and Prejudice too, where she said, I feel like it's too light and it lacks shade. And I, there, I think there was a reviewer who reviewed Pride, Prejudice and other flavors and said, well, she added shade, you know, she added the shade. But to me, the idea that that a choice for these girls is between again, they're going to lose their home. It's a choice between marriage and destitution. That's pretty darn dark, you know? I mean, I know we're not supposed to, like, that's not what the story is about, but that's pretty dark. What happens to Georgiana is pretty darn dark. And what, how unforgiving that world is of that. If that came out, what Wickham did to her, that's the end of her life, right? And her brother has to protect that. So I feel like those were things that my mind picked up and maybe I just have, you know, a terribly dark mind. Uh, But that's what I look at. And and persuasion, sure enough, I was able to use as my story tools and my story devices things that mean something to me and things that in the contemporary world I feel, you know, need to be addressed in terms of story. But really, even with persuasion, you know, that's what you're looking at. You're looking at 
a motherless girl who's almost vulnerable because there are people around her who are advising her and she feels kind of lost because she doesn't fit into this family at all. She just has no one to identify with. And that's pretty sad. And that's why she makes mistakes. And so that ups her character uh, when she's able to stand up against this because that's her whole world. I get so angry when I watch uh, film adaptations of Persuasion because they always make Anne mousy and she is not, right? She is a girl who is able to see her entire world for how wrong it is, right? I mean, she's these are her own sisters. This is her own father. And not for a moment does she think what they're saying and doing is right and is okay. And we live in this world today where every one of our families has political differences within it, right? And we've all had these conversations at our table where we're saying, no, you're wrong. And I think that in her own way, she's able to say that, no, you're wrong. How you see the world is wrong. And that's pretty badass, I think. So I was just kind of trying to find contemporary ways to give that form. No, I love that. And I mean, in addition to sort of like exploring those dark themes and exploring everything else, I mean, it still is like a really beautiful love story between Rico and Ashna. And it's also a really beautiful mother-daughter story between Shobi and Ashna because, you know, so much of this, I mean, like sometimes I feel like reading your books, I I almost feel like I'm reading like a psychology book, but like as a story, you know, because you, you do such a good job of like going into like how everybody feels and like where that came from and like what it's doing to you now. You know, we really loved the love story between Ashna and her mother, how she went from like resenting her choosing other girls and this career and leaving her over staying home and raising Ashna. Yeah, I think love stories are magic. But to me, she would not be that person at the end of the book if her love story with her mother does not. So this is so much is Shobi and Ashna's story because that's foundational for her. The book is so much about that for me. Initially, when I started writing it, I thought, oh, I'm going to write a two-generational persuasion. So it was really the juxtaposition of Shobi and Omar's story over Rico and Ashna's story. But really, it became more about the intersecting point of that, which was, you know, Shobi and Ashna. And I think, again, it's that badassness, right? And also, Shobi just, it just so happens that she had to be overtly badass as a opposed to, you know, Ashna, who it is her privilege to be more silently badass, right? And so I think that that also is something for us to think about. What we were saying is that, you know, it was much harder for um, Jane Austen to write those stories. And no matter how radical a story I write today, there is no comparison to doing it at a time where the world is, you know, the paradigm is completely different. And my mother and my grandmother, when, and I was incredibly close to both my grandmothers, and I'm, I feel like I'm very blessed with, because my mom is completely um, groundbreaking almost as a mom raising um, a girl in India back then. I'm proud of the kind of mom I am to my own daughter, But it's so easy for me because this is the world I live in, right? This is not completely, I'm not pulling this out of thin air. There's a lot of moms like me around and this is the world we live in. But my mom was able to teach me things and show me things that were unheard of. So I always wonder, like, where did you even growing up in a small town in India in 1950s? How did you even think about women owning their sexuality or understanding body image or understanding that ownership of your sexuality and being able to talk about that and transfer that to your daughter. 
you know, being able to understand the micro messaging and when men talk to you and when there was, you know, a conversation going on in the room and who got to speak and who didn't. I don't even know where she got that from. She literally had to have pulled it from somewhere. And that's, um, you know, the level of strength is way higher than anything I could do at this point. You know, and don't get me wrong. My mom, you know, can also annoy the heck out of me. And all mothers have to do that. You know, it's in the mom manifesto. But but having said that, there is something. And then my grandmother, you know, 10 times that she went to med school in British India. And my grandparents fell in love in med school. And here was a woman who had this long, brilliant medical career where people would look at her and assume she's a nurse, right? That never happened to her husband. And so, so many things, right? But but these women were getting their strength from somewhere. And so to me, that's that really is the beauty of this story, I think, is that generational connection between women. And just, again, you know, Shobi and Meena, both, I think, pretty badass women, but who've had been able to find different ways to couch that in the daughters they bring up and, and in how they support each other and all of that so you know that to me really is what makes that story mine and theirs as someone who has immigrant parents I feel like there's so many things that I related to in this as well of like getting to see the backstory of like what were the struggles that Ashna's mother went through and I think even at the end Mina tells Ashna like you were shielded from so much of this like you don't know all the struggles and I think as a reader it's really beautiful that you know we do get to see it and like as Jillian mentioned you know at the at first we resent Shobi a bit we're like why isn't she a better mother but then by the end we're like my goodness the strength of this woman of what she went through is is really incredible to see thank you and I also think in terms of the immigrant part of it is again between Mina and Shobi right um Shobi never in she owns her Indianness and she absolutely refuses to ever Americanize her in any way so there are I think little little things whereas Mina is entirely assimilated right mm-hmm. and so for her daughters so as daughters these girls are processing their female role models and their mothers differently right I mean here Ashna feels like every day that she goes to school she has to fit in and here she is unexpectedly when she's eight uh, or nine in this completely new country that she never expected I mean she was living in a palace right in India and and so now here she is and it's not all of her but it is a small part of her where you know it's her mom doesn't care she has a huge bindi on her head and her and she leaves you know America every three months and she doesn't um, have any connection with it and this girl for no choice of her own and nobody stops to take a moment because nobody figures that it's hard because you know often we display more resilience than we have because not being resilient comes with so much shame and for somebody Mm. who's dealing with so much shame and Ashna was a challenging protagonist to write in today's day and age because we cannot I think we cannot in books show any weakness right we cannot in fiction show any weakness just like in real life any weakness we show comes with this, you know, huge amounts of baggage. Sure. And so here is a very broken character. You know, I wanted the book to be fun and escapist also because I wanted that. And I think that at one point I had a beta reader uh, read the book and say that being inside Ashna's head is such a, you know, overwhelmingly dark and sad experience And I realized that's not who Ashna was and that's not who I wanted her to be. And so, you know, that's the layering of a character. And I I don't want to say I changed her, 
but I completely um, changed her personality to not be overtly dark. And I think that made it more powerful. And mm-hmm. so it was really great feedback from a beta, beta reader. I mean, bless beta readers. They're just great, <laughs> right? Because they see things like this. But I think for the, this moment in time, that was almost indulgent. That would have been an indulgent character to write. Somebody who wallows and Ashna doesn't wallow, right? But her pain is very present. And I think these little things is what really makes that pain that present. So, I mean, we loved the ending. What do you think is next for Ashna and Rico? Like, what comes next for them? So, Ashna and Rico, of course, feature um, heavily in the next book. Because it is Yasha's story and Rico now works on Yasha's campaign. I think that, you know, for the most part, also the hard journeys are done in these stories, just like, you know, Trisha and um, DJ are in recipe, but the hard part of their journey is done. And which is not to say that, you know, their lives are perfect in any way, but they're pretty darn good, right? Because they've made that journey of putting themselves in a place where they can um, enjoy the fruits of their labor somewhat. So that is true of, again, uh, Rico and Ashna too. You know, I mean, they're all in a good place and now it's normal life. You know, it's going to have ups, it's going to have downs. But I do keep away specifically from, and I've been very mindful about this with this um, set of books, which is to not make happiness about marriage. And this, Mm -hmm. I think, has to do with me being rebellious I think, of my own upbringing. I really don't want that world for my daughter and for the girls of today where um, I want marriage to be a choice simply because you want to do it, but not a requirement for happiness in terms of conditioning. And I know it happens in my first book because my first book, Bollywood Affair, is really about you know, a child bride breaking out of that. So it's always been, I kind of feel iconoclastic about marriage a little bit. And so specifically, I don't want any of these books to have that, you know, it ends with the big fat Indian wedding, nothing wrong with it. But I I wanted it to really be about these people being okay. For sure. We're looking forward to seeing more bromance moments between <laughs> Yash and Rico. <laughs> we really loved those scenes. I, yeah, it's. I think it has something to do with Yasha as a character. And there is this, again, is this magic with writers. And there are just characters, I think, that when they appear on the page are just, they just take over the scene. And I think right from the first book, there is something about Yash being on, on the page where he kind of takes over the scene. If the scene becomes about him, whether he is with, you know, he, he's making a small appearance with DJ and Trisha, or whether it is, you know, I mean, literally there are like three seconds of him in these scenes in Recipe for Persuasion 2. He's just been such a magical character, and I'm going to put him through the ringer, poor guy. He's, you know, <laughs> so watch out. But yeah, I mean, he's just such a gift as a, uh, just as a character, he was such a gift to write. I mean, he has more of a bromance with Rico because of the way the story was but I think even his scenes with DJ in the you know in the first book there's just something about these men who have such a clear understanding of the patriarchy and how it also harms men these heroes are all very overtly feminist in the sense that there is an intrinsic belief in their importance in this world being equivalent to the importance of anyone else in the world right 
uh, which I think is a problem that was in older heroes, that there is no matter how much, you know, how hard a lot of male authors and female authors tried to be woke and feminist, there was just an intrinsic belief in a lot of the male protagonists we saw in books up until very recently, that that was just okay with the world order where they are higher. I try to write these men as men who see that who see their sisters and their girlfriends and their mothers as dealing with that and acknowledge that completely. And that's part of who they are. So that's why these men, when they, you know, when they interact with each other, there is something that's almost beautiful in a, in a different way that, than a chest thumping connection that we generally see between men. Right. And I think that that's also very organic to these characters. And, and so, yeah, I love writing their scenes together as much <laughs> as you love reading them. So I'm so glad that you do. Yeah, love that. So another Rico moment that we really just died over in this book was when he literally quoted Persuasion and said that he was (laughs) half agony, half hope. And something we want to know is, can we expect any lines like that from Sense and Sensibility in from Yash in in Sense and Sensibility? I try to keep away from... um... I do not want these books to be seen by scene, you know, retellings, but there are just iconic scenes, right? Like you can't, I don't know if you can retell or you can even pay homage to Pride and Prejudice without having the horribly awkward proposal. How are you going to do that, right? Mm-hmm. And a, a meet cute, which just has you seeing the other person in this horrible light, right? So those are absolute uh, requirements. Uh, Pride, Prejudice and other flavors, of course, has the proposal scene which I feel is very you know is probably the most parallel thing in that book and then with recipe it was her interaction with his friend I think that that's one of the ones and of course Rico's name is Frederico and his and there is that as again part of that homage because it is his mother's favorite book and so he's named after Frederick Wentworth so of course he's heard his mom talk about the book growing up and you know and so he knows that line in Sense and Sensibility I think that there are sister scenes that are like that you know between the two of them because uh, the two sisters are going through very different forms of the same thing. They're both in love and one can show it and one can't. And one is really all about showing it. Marianne loves the concept of being in love as much as she actually loves being in love. And she's so in your face about it, which is lovely. So there's a lot of those scenes where, you know, the sisters aren't comparing notes, but we as readers are are actually comparing notes when we're seeing them interact, where the feelings are no less, you know, if not more strong, but one is not able to show it. And you know the pain of it those things are very much reflected and of course um you know the overt questions of what is a promise right is it is it what you say and i think that that is actually not from the original book it is from the movie and and so i know that there's a (laughs) in all honesty that is not one of my favorite movies i'm not a fan of the emma thompson movie at all because uh oh boy oh boy all right we're gonna go there i i feel like she is not a great eleanor and i love emma thompson but i think she plays eleanor almost awkwardly for me she just doesn't have the you know the soft strength of eleanor and also the whole like meltdown at the end was very un-eleanor for me and you know so it was 
Whereas, <laughs> whereas the BBC um, adaptation, I can't remember the name of the actress who plays Eleanor, I think is spot on, absolutely. And for me, that's a better uh, adaptation. But anyway, so, so there is, you know, in some ways, there are some direct references in one of them, although it's applied differently. I think in the adaptation, the person who says promises, um, you know, is, is not what you say, it's what you do, or some form of that is spoken by Marianne, I think, with respect to Willoughby. But I think it applies just as much to Edward and Eleanor. And so in my story, it's much more overtly focused on that spotlight of, you know, what is a promise and what is a lie is much more focused on Yash and India, who are Eleanor and Edward. Awesome. So when can we expect Incense and Sensibility to hit the shelves? As of now, the date is July 6th. And it might say that, but I mean, I'd say stay tuned and my website and my social media has will have that information. But right now we're looking at July 2021. All right. That's exciting. And can you tell us who's going to be in the Emma storyline? Or is that a surprise? (laughs) Um, That's way out. What I can tell you is that it's going to be gender flipped. And there's, uh, you know, there's there's some um, mix up of characters, but it is gender flipped and it is, uh, you know, obviously the youngest brother, Vansh, is Emma. So, okay. you know, I feel like he's um, he's the quintessential brat or, you know, who's always, <laughs> always has the best intentions. And that's very much, um, I think, Emma. We're excited to see that. Yay. Sonali, thank you so much for giving us all this fantastic information this was great this was so much fun and i am so excited that both of you loved the book so much of course thank you so much 